Good morning. It is uh, great to be with you on uh, this Lord's Day, and uh, hope you're staying dry. Had a little bit of rain coming over. For those of you who may not be familiar with uh, with Athletes in Action, uh, we uh, do have an athletic ministry at Penn State. We've been missionaries to the church here for, oh my, many years. I, I forget, 25 maybe? Maybe more, something like that. But uh, you, you all have been faithful in terms of praying and and supporting our work there, uh, my wife and I. And this is our, our mission statement. Uh, you can kind of can read it. Uh, and when we uh, are on campus, this is one of the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to communicate the gospel message to uh, not only the athletes, but those that, that participate in the athletic department so that we can then uh, you know, bring uh, young men and women to the Lord so that they can speak about their faith to others. In fact, we just uh, last weekend we were at Rockview state uh, penitentiary there where we were sharing with the inmates and two, uh, two football players shared their testimony and uh, we gave a message a gospel presentation um, to it was packed the chapel was standing room only and uh, they they would like for us to come back and hopefully we can do that uh, it's uh, it's a humbling experience to be able to uh, stand before those men and uh, talk about Christ and what he's done but uh, again, we appreciate your prayers. One thing, if you can kind of write this down or at least put it in your mind, if you can pray for us, we're in about three weeks. Uh, the ministry is going to start up. It's, uh, they're in the finals right now or they're done with finals for the summer. And the football players are into their, um, what they call camp, preseason. But uh, in three weeks, classes will begin. And just pray that God will raise up athletes that want to hear the gospel message that we'll be able to uh, share the gospel with. And uh, just we'll just keep it simple at that point. I'll have I'll send along some other prayer requests a little more specifically as time goes on. But um, and and uh, as was mentioned earlier this this morning, I just kind of want to uh, put a little two cents worth in the movie. I forget the name of the movie. What is it? I went and saw the movie. What's it? Say again. God's not dead. I, I have a hard time remembering books, authors, my name, my children's names. Uh, no. Isn't that right, Sharon? <laughs> okay, but it's a good movie. It really is. It's, it's money well spent. Uh, I saw it when it was in uh, State College, and uh, it's just something that if you, if you know, especially maybe you're, you know somebody who's not a believer, but they're interested in uh, the Christian faith, it'd be a good, good uh, movie to take them to. It's also a way in which we as Christians can communicate to the owners of uh, however many theaters there are here, but that this is something that as... Uh, as Christians, we're going to support, and so they'll bring in other movies like this that we can use for our own personal edification as well as maybe using it as a witness to those who, who don't know Christ. So check it out. It will be money well spent. Okay, if you have your Bibles, with this being Communion Sunday, I wanted to, to kind of share, uh, kind of keep the theme of, of not only the sermon but then uh, the aspect of communion uh, in, uh, in kind of a, a flow here. I wanted to address the issue, that's right, I'm supposed to move this thing, um, of experiencing unity in the Lord. You know, one of the reasons for the Lord's Supper, that ordinance, is it, it is a way in which we as Christians um, kind of practice that, that principle of showing forth that, that we are united, uh, that we're moving in the same direction. Uh, and yet, you know how difficult it is uh, for us as Christians to uh, sometimes live up to that standard. So I wanted to, to kind of use this as a means to encourage us uh, it's something that I have found that I've got to continually kind of go back and uh, uh, kind of reflect uh, and kind of recharge the batteries as it relates to this issue. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to uh, 
to Philippians. We're going to look at a couple verses there for our consideration. But before I do, I wanted to read to you a little uh, excerpt from a book. Uh, This book is entitled The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, and it's by Barbara Robinson. And within this book, it tells the story of a peculiar family which uh, decides to participate in the town's annual Christmas pageant. It's a bit unpredictable, yet there are some wonderful things that happen as a result of this. Listen to the description of the family. The family's name are the Herdsmans. The uh, author goes on to to write this. It says that the Herdsmans were, were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole. They smoked cigars, even the girls. Uh, and talked dirty, and they hit little kids, they, they cussed their teachers out, and took the Lord's name in vain. They were just so all-around awful, you could hardly believe that they were real. Ralph, Imogene, Claude, Ollie, Gladys, five skinny, stringy-haired kids, all alike except for having different black and blue places on their bodies where they had clunked each other. They lived over, over a garage at the bottom of Sproul Hill. Nobody used the garage anymore, but the herdsmen used to bang the door up and down just as fast as they could to try to squash one another. That was their idea of a fun game. Where other people had grass in their front yard, the herdsmen had rocks. Where other people had hydrania bushes, the herdsmen had poison ivy. There was also a sign in the yard that said, Beware of the cat. When new kids would come into the neighborhood, they would laugh at the sign until they got a look at the cat. I mean, it was the meanest-looking animal you ever saw. It had one short leg, a broken tail, and one eye missing. The cat was so ferocious that that the mailman refused to deliver mail to their house. Well, the the kids moved from grade to grade through the Woodrow Wilson School like those South American fish that strip your body clean in three minutes flat, which is about what they did to one teacher after another. But they never, ever got held back from the next grade. When it came time for Claude Herdsman to pass on from the first grade to the second grade, he didn't know his ABCs, his numbers, his colors, his shapes, or how to get along with anyone. But Mrs. Brandell passed him anyway. For one thing, she knew she'd have Ollie Herdman the next year. We all figured they were headed straight for hell by the way of the state penitentiary until they got mixed up with the church and my mother at our Christmas pageant. Well, you think about this, we probably, probably all know a family or two that, that maybe has some of those kind of qualities or, well, maybe if we're even honest with ourselves, we'll have to admit that we've got some of the Herdman blood in us as well. See, at one time we were all headed straight to hell if it were not for the church, if it were not for, for us coming to, to saving faith in who Jesus Christ is, you know, and, and ultimately... You know, this is, this is why Jesus came. He came to not only communicate how we can have eternal life, but then also how he could transform us into the image of himself. How, how we could tra- change from, from being uh, people like the herdmen into Christ himself. See, this is Paul's purpose for writing to the Philippians there. Uh, he wants to and he longs to be able to proclaim the message, this life-changing message of the gospel uh, to them. But... He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7, kind of under house arrest. And uh, again, he's not sure if he's going to be acquitted. He doesn't know if, if, if he is going to live or if he's going to die. 
And so he kind of sums up everything in verse 27 of our text uh, when he says, look, whatever happens, you conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Just with that statement that the Apostle Paul is appealing to the Corinthians, he is literally saying this. He is saying, look, exercise your citizenship that in a worthy way because of the gospel of Christ. It was a way in which he could encourage them to, well, to behave as citizens. Now, this would have meant something to the Philippians because the, the, the city there, the Philippi, was a Roman colony. And that was a title that was coveted by people uh, within the Roman Empire. Because why? Well, to be uh, a colony meant that you had the status of being recognized as a Roman citizen. Your names were on the rolls of Rome, so to speak. And so as a result, you can enjoy the, uh, the legal position as, as well as some of the civil, uh, civic uh, privileges and, and responsibilities of being a Roman. It was significant. And I think that's why Paul uses that kind of uh, language to, to help get the attention of the believers there because he's, because he's saying, you know, not only are you a, a citizen of Rome, but more importantly, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. And so there are certain privileges, certain uh, responsibility, certain honors that have been, been bestowed upon you in terms of how you live and how you are, are to act. See, he's encouraging them to live out their lives as citizens of the kingdom of God in a pagan world, in, in a world that was hostile towards the message, in a world that, uh, well, was a mess, kind of like our world today. <laughs> you know, there's an opportunity for us to, to really be and make a difference well, there's a, a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche, Nietzsche that said this. He said, look, you show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. You show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. See, that's Paul's word to the people at Philippi, and by extension to you and I today. Our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers... They're seeking a demonstration of what it looks like or what it means to be a Christian, sometimes more so than an explanation. See, God wants us to live out that kind of life. Why? Because God knows that, that when we stand united, we become an incredible force that God can work through to further his kingdom and to, and to further glorify his name. And that's what Paul is talking about here in, in these verses in Philippians uh, chapter 1 and, and through part of, of chapter 2. But the question becomes this. Well, well what does a, a life look like worthy of this type of, of, of appearance? Uh, if a foreign citizen were, were to come and, and would see these heavenly citizens, what qualities would they see? Well, Paul could have picked out a number of qualities, but the one that he focuses in on is the aspect of unity. And, and he develops that theme. See, basically, he, he wants us to understand that our strength and our effectiveness in terms of being a witness is going to be based upon our unity. Again, look, look at what he says here in the last three verses of chapter 1 in Philippians. He says this. He says, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, then whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, uh, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is using some military language here to express himself in in, in this paragraph. In other words, he sees uh, this worldly life being lived out in the midst of a hostile world. See, there's a battle that's going on, a spiritual battle that's going on all around us. And especially if you're you're somewhat informed of of what's going on in the world today, uh, there are so many Christians that are being persecuted. Many of them are being martyred for their faith throughout the world. We may see larger numbers in the 21st century than we saw in the 20th century. Things that are happening. Why? Because it's a world that that is is bent. There are those who who are bent on destroying the Christian faith and the Christian witness. We are to live insulated lives, but not isolated lives. Paul's desire is that the Philippians would be steadfast under this attack. Look at some of the words he uses here. He talks about standing firm. In, in, in one uh, spirit, or he talks about striving together for the faith. It carries with it the idea of marching in unison, fighting side by side for the faith. In fact, I sometimes wonder, with Paul being well, attached to a Roman guard 24-7, if he's not thinking about a, a military formation that the Greeks had made popular. Alexander the Great uh, was the one who, who conquered Persia, with this uh, thing that they called the, the, uh, the Phalanx. The, it's, it's spelled P-H-A-L-A-N-X. And it's, it's where they would take a group of soldiers. In fact, what Rome did was they, they would take about 250 soldiers, form them into a block, tight lines. They would have shields on their side, shields in the front of them, shields over their head. And in the first five rows of the soldiers, they would put their spears out. Spears were 14 feet long. Soldiers behind those would rest their spears than on the soldiers in front of them. I mean, think about this. 250 soldiers. It was, it was like a human tank marching toward your formation. How in the world would you stop something like that? Well, oftentimes they didn't. It struck incredible fear in the enemy's heart as they saw this uh, formation coming towards them. And I think Paul's point here is that we are able to walk together as a unit in proclaiming the gospel if there is this sense of, of unity among us, it, it almost becomes a force that's unstoppable. See, unity, our unity, is designed to bring strength. And, and where it's true that, that the point here is corporate strength, it also takes some individual strength to live out the Christian life before us. Well, how, how does that happen? How do we do that? How do we stand firm in the Lord? You know, we're not to create unity, but we are to realize that we are supposed to preserve it. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians says that. He says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. It means we've got to work hard at that. It just doesn't come easy. But but the fact remains, we don't have to create unity because it's already there. How is it already there? It's there because of the gospel message that it was proclaimed to us. And by us accepting Christ as as our Savior, God has placed His love within our hearts. And as we grow in our understanding of who God is, that love relationship develops, it's easy then to spill out to others and love others. And, and that's where really, he says, the strength comes from. Uh, it's, it's our unity together as a corporate body that, that provides strength, but it also helps us in terms of the individual strength that we need. Jesus talked about this.
How do I? T- oh, there it is. Okay. Um, in John, uh, I'm not going to read all that, but this is something you want to write down in your notes and look at later. That's fine. Uh, before Jesus went to the cross, before he was crucified, this, is, this was his prayer. He says, I'm not praying for them uh, alone, but he says, I'm also going to pray for those who believe in me through their message. Well, that means you and I. Jesus is praying this today, that there would be the sense of unity, the sense of oneness that he had in his relationship to the Father and demonstrated in his life. And so it's something that's encouraging or should be encouraging for us. See, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is that when a group of believers stand together and they allow the Spirit of God to work out their unity, this shows the world that there is something different about you. You know, how we we interact with one another, how we care for one another. There are people that are watching us. And and often I've seen, uh, when, when a ministry really begins to grow, things really begin to happen, one of the first things that, that Satan does is he tries to bring in division, schisms, factions, you know, getting our eyes off of what is important. You know, we're seeing uh, people reach for Christ. Our numbers are growing. The, the, the qualitative aspect of the ministry is increasing. And oftentimes what happens after that are problems. I was in a church once where there were some people, uh, it was a small church, uh, they were a struggling church, they were doing well financially, but, but the people had good hearts and and, and a couple of people took it upon themselves to paint the basement. You know, they needed a new coat of paint. And so they, they, they dug into their own pockets. They, they bought the paint, and, and they put this paint. You know how hard it is to paint the cinder block, right? Well, they put a fresh coat of paint. And I remember going in because I was, I was teaching Wednesday night class there. Bible study, and I thought, wow, this really looks nice. They did a great job. Yeah, the only problem was they didn't check with anybody. You know, they just kind of took it upon themselves, and rightfully so. They probably should have checked with the people to see, hey, is this okay to do? And, and what do you think of this color? But, they, you know, they just didn't. They wanted to make it a surprise. And everybody was surprised. <laughs> but it almost caused a major rift in the church because, you know, that which they wanted to surprise people and they did it out of the kindness of their heart, it, it took a little while to work through that and say, well, look, look, we need to believe the best and we need to, to see that, that the people meant well by what they were doing. But it had the potential of, of causing a, a great schism there, a great break in, in the, uh, the ministry. Well, see, our unity, not only is it in terms of ha- being unified, there is that aspect of God's effectiveness, his strength seeing through us what we do, but our unity is experienced through humility. I mean, when you think about what Paul is saying here, uh, it is really true. If, if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul continues, he says, look, if you have, have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and we do, if there's any comfort from his love, and there is, any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He said, look, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, he said, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, the Apostle Paul is telling us that unity is not just a necessary tool that is used for protection against the hostile world, but it is the very essence, I think, of the Christian faith and how we are to live. Uh, When we display outwardly that the gospel is, is doing this in our lives, that it's transforming us in this way, that we're a unit, that we have a kindred spirit. The world looks at that and they say, wow, what is it that you guys have that I don't have? See, people want that. They want to know that they're cared for, that they're understood, 
that they're appreciated. But that takes humility. See, unity and humility are like Siamese twins. They're perpetually connected. Uh, We've all seen occasions, I think, when, when pride wins out. And what happens? When pride wins out, harmony quickly fades away. So Paul gives us some insights into this, this aspect of, of being other-centered, uh, not being so self-centered, but recognizing, for one thing, what God has done for us, how much he has forgiven us. Jesus said in Luke 7 that to the person who is forgiven little, they forgive little. But, but to the one, he said, who is forgiven much, forgives much. And there's a great principle there. It was coming on the heels of, of where this prostitute had come in, to a place where they were, we were having a meal and she begins to wash Jesus' feet. Jesus' host, who was a religious leader, who knew better, didn't even do that, didn't even provide Jesus that, that common courtesy. And here this prostitute comes in and with her tears, washes his feet, wipes his feet with her very hair. <laughs> and Jesus said, she understands what it means to be forgiven. Um, it's, it's a good principle, a good thing to re- we should be reminded of in terms of, of this aspect of, of the, the issue of unity and, and humility. See, oftentimes it's our pride that gets in the way that disrupts things, that creates a problem. You see, the secret to living in harmony is not found in pursuing our own interests, but it's looking out for the interests of others. I think unity is only possible when, when we deal with situations in a humble manner. We don't pursue our own selfish agenda. If we could uh, maybe show that one video, the first video here, that kind of accent that, give you a little background. There's a coach. It's based on a true story of a coach that goes to inner city L.A. and tries to bring discipline back into the team and help them to become better. And there's one guy who's just failing in making the mark. He's trying to, to regain his position on the team. All right, that's it for today. We have a game tomorrow, so get some rest tonight. And remember, ties and jackets tomorrow. Play. Mr. Cruz, I'm impressed with what you've done, but you came up short. You owe me 80 suicides and 500 push-ups. Please leave my gym. Thanks, Clyde. Gentlemen, see you tomorrow. I'll do push-ups for him. You said we're a team. One person struggles, and we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph, right? I'll do some. I'll run suicides too.
I'll do some too. You know, Jesus said that uh, self is something to be poured out, not something to, to necessarily be uh, showered upon just ourselves. I love what that one guy said there, you know, we're a team, coach. And when one suffers, we all suffer. When one triumphs, we all triumph. It's a great picture of how we as a church and as a community need to, to live out this aspect of, of, hum, of, of unity in, in a spirit or an attitude of humility. Well, lastly, I think humility is understood through the life of Christ. If you look at verses 5 through 7, Paul says this, 5 through 11, he says this, he says, Your attitude should be the same that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of uh, God the Father. These are some profound verses in Scripture. Uh, the message of the cross is found throughout the gospel, and, and its meaning is predominant, a predominant theme of all the epistles. But in these verses, it's very interesting, because we see the cross through the eyes of the one crucified. And it's something that I know I, I continue to go back over and look at my own life and, and try to remember in terms of, of what Jesus was trying to teach us. Alec uh, uh, Motier writes this, he says, we do well to remember that we are privileged to enter into the mind of Christ, not for the satisfaction of curiosity, but for the reformation of our lives, for the changing of our lives and who we are. Christ became obedient. He emptied himself. He became obedient to death, and he did it for our sake. As an example, became a curse on the cross so that we might be better and do better. He says, the scripture teaches us that we need to humble ourselves before God and, and to allow God at the right time to exalt us. You know, my prayer is that uh, people of your neighborhoods or people where you work and go to school will see the kind of unity, the kind of, of kindred spirit that you have, one among yourselves, as, as you cling and allow God to, to continue to meet your needs, to continue to form you together, and, and, and to be a significant outreach to the community that, uh, that you live in.